Hello, this Saturday morning, you're listening to The Core Report Weekend Edition with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. On this show, you'll be hearing conversations typically featured in our YouTube video series, Connecting the Dots. In these conversations, I speak to experts from various industries who help connect the dots on topics and issues that aren't usually accessible to most of us. But be sure, by the end of it, you would have gained a deeper understanding of something interesting or significant in the industrial or technology space as I did putting it together. If you prefer video, we've also included the YouTube link in the description. Other than that, we hope you truly enjoy the show. There are some things in life which are perishable. Airline seats, for example, are one. Uh, The other is flowers. And it's always interesting to understand and maybe go a little deeper into how a perishable commodity or a perishable product, for that matter, a luxury product in this case, uh, works. And what are the unit economics that drive it? And how do people who run such companies manage the flow, uh, so to speak? And I would really pose the same question to an airline operator as well, except that that's something that we use in a very different context. So, in that very respect, I'm Pleased to be joined by Vikas Gudgutia, the founder and managing director of Ferns and Petals. It's an online and uh, offline uh, flowers delivery company. It started as a flowers delivery company, but is now in a very diversified sense across the gifting space. Vikas, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me over. So Vikas, uh, first question, if you can you know, give us a little bit of a history of Ferns and Petals, where you started and more importantly, why did you start this? Clearly at a time when no one was venturing into bringing formalization into a very informal space. Going back 30 years, 1994, I was a graduate from Kolkata and I had come to visit Delhi. That was the time I discovered that Delhi as a, as a city lacks good florist because we had the same business in Kolkata. So I knew what flower business is all about. Since I was in college, I used to go there for uh, an hour or two to help my uncle. So I had fair idea about uh, how the flowers are and how they are sold and everything. But when I came to Delhi, I realized that there is a possibility and there is a, a vacuum for a good florist who can serve uh, Delhiites better. And I think that was the triggering point where I started researching a little more and the FNP was started. Okay, I'll uh, come to that in a moment. Uh, tell us about uh, the flower business, Vikas. I mean, what are the determinants on a, on a day-to-day basis? How do you manage stock? How do you ensure that most flowers, for the perishable reasons that I referred to earlier, leave the shop or the premises by the end of the day or maybe two days? That's probably the most difficult part because it's highly perishable. And uh, it is not something which is uh, a daily consumption product in our country. Of course, in Europe and US, people use flowers in their houses as well. But in India, flowers are mostly used for gifting purpose and gifting is occasional. So, our occasional product with highly perishable in nature, was a very difficult proposition. First of all, since I was used to doing this in Kolkata, I I had some basic knowledge about how the flower management and the flower engineering is done, so that your wastage is minimal, and how the pricing has to be done, so that you can kind of take care of the perishable nature of flowers and the flowers which you lose. So, I kind of mastered it further in Delhi by seeing how the flowers, which have not been sold during the day, can still be used towards the evening for some purpose. And the wastage is minimum. And for that, uh, we started supplying to some institutional offices and hotels 
where you know we we could supply flowers on on a weekly basis, so that whatever we could not sell was consumed at a lower price, but wastage was uh, reduced, and many such things like you know um, getting into a happy hour towards the evening where people can come and book and pick up flowers. So somehow the most difficult part was. The reason we didn't have many organized players in the market, all of them were small timers, roadside ones. So initial journey was tough because to manage the economy and the scale was different, difficult also. But then gradually we kind of mastered that art, and that's the reason we could succeed. And uh, you've touched upon this, but if you could dwell on that a little more, so what would be the trends? As in, what are the kind of flowers that would, let's say, typically go out by? Noon or afternoon of the day, and firstly, also, what time would they arrive at your shop, and what is it that you would try and let's say push towards more institutional customers? If you could give us that sort of breakup, see the flower scenario at that point of time, thirty years back, was very different than what it is today. It was very primitive. You just had few flowers which used to grow naturally in different parts of the country, were used as the flowers for bouquets and celebrations. There was no commercial cultivation on a corporate scale. There was no organized floriculture farm. There was not much money which went into floriculture. So the flower availability of the flower was very very poor. And we only used to get four to five flowers, which were typically gladiolus, rasnigandha, roses, which were naturally grown without any scientific met- methodology. So and those were the flowers which we used to sell in our shops. Of course, rose is the most perishable flower out of all these, which wilts the fastest. So the idea was to sell the roses first, and the glads and the rasnigandhas used to last longer. So those were the ones we tried to keep it for longer period. So that was the basic four or five flower scenario. So it wasn't difficult. Now, of course, we have hundreds of flowers, and flowers come from all over the world, and we have thousands of farms growing different kind of flowers all over the country. But that was a very different scenario at that point of time. Tell us about the first problem that you were trying to solve as you were trying to grow. Uh, was it building the the back end linkages or like for example the farms? So there are two problems. First problem was the procurement of flour because there was no organized mandi or flour market where one can go and buy. One has to have direct link with the growers in different parts of the country, and to be able to get the flour from them, you had to kind of. Give them a minimum guarantee, and the minimum guarantee can only be given unless you, you know, kind of able to sell a certain quantity. So we are unable to promise the quantity, and have to go and buy directly from the grower was the most difficult proposition. So for first and foremost challenge was to increase my sales or increase my shops so that I'm able to consume a larger quantity so that I can get flowers at a cheaper rate from the growers directly. That was the first and the biggest challenge. And once those flowers started coming in. I also realized that why not start wholesaling flowers because there are no wholesalers in the market. And now, if say for example, I get hundred flowers in a day, if I'm able to consume thirty, forty, I started selling those sixty flowers to other florists who probably were facing the same problem. So this adversity of this problem gave birth to an opportunity, which ultimately made the retail sustainable. And and what is that mix today? Today it's is completely different. Today we do not wholesale anymore. Now we have got flower markets, wholesale markets in all major cities of the country. Flowers are growing very, very methodically, and there are there's a beautiful supply chain which works nicely. So things are very organized, very different now. 
now it's like you go and procure whatever you want from the Monday in the morning, you know, 10 flowers or 20 flowers or whatever color. So there's no compulsion now. So to go back to the transition, so suppose you were to take, let's say, uh, 100 flowers or 100 units of flowers, where would they come from earlier? And you said that, you know, you had to go to the money, it was a little random, versus where they come from today. See, flowers, even at that point of time and now, flower cultivation is good only where the weather is uniform. In extreme weathers, all flowers can't sustain. Say, for example, northern India is not suitable for growing flowers around the year. It's only suitable for flowers which can be grown in winter or Kashmir where flowers can only grow at a certain period of time. It's only the Bombay and the Pune and Bangalore and that was the region which has always been the flower supplying region of the country. So even today, most of the floriculture farms which are large, organized, are in that belt because the cost is lower because you have to pay less to manipulate with the weather. So therefore, most of your flowers that you're, let's say, supplying in northern India, and we'll, we'll come to the e-commerce part in a bit, are really coming to you from uh, being trucked from, let's say, western region or southern region? Not trucked. They are all flown every day from those two regions, yes. So can you give us a rough sense in tonnage or uh, hundreds of kilograms, how many flowers are going in which direction on a normal day? It's a difficult question because I'm not into wholesaling and I'm neither growing flowers, but I can tell you that... Uh, no, this is about your your own consumption. I mean, what, you're the, what's coming into your system? My consumption, I think we consume close to 5 to 7 lakh stems a day. Okay, and where would majority of those 5 lakh stems come from? See, it's a very different mix. Some of them are imported. They come from Thailand. Orchid grows there naturally. Some flowers come from China. Some flowers come from the southern part of India. Some come from western part of India. I cannot proportionately tell you which flower comes from which area and what percentage, but it's widely spread. But I'm assuming that flowers are coming from Thailand and China because it's not an electronics product where you're looking for a cheaper substitute. But this, I'm assuming, is a higher cost substitute in some ways because it's the value of that orchid that obviously has aspiration in the eyes of the customer. See, what has happened is wherever flowers to be grown artificially or in polyhouses with extra cost and there are some flowers which grow naturally in certain parts of the world. So wherever the weather is conducive and the artificial or the mechanical process is less, that's where the flowers are cheaper and that's where it makes sense for flowers to be flown in from. So now Thailand, Thailand is the hub for orchids because of the weather and because of the cultivating habits. It's an age-old flower which belongs to Thailand. So any country, whichever country do whatever, they cannot beat the Thailand in terms of the variety and the cost and the quantity. Similarly, the certain flowers which grows beautifully in Kunmin in China. Now, Kunmin is like heaven on earth in terms of weather. Those flowers cannot grow anywhere, you know, in that quantity at that price. So, it's all region-wise because of the climate and the cultivating habit which has been there for years. And, and orchid is something that, let's say, people here are maybe have aspired more for in the last decade or two as opposed to before? I mean, this is a question. I mean, if you look at 30 years back, people don't, don't even know what orchid is all about. I mean, today orchid is a common flower and orchid grown in Thailand is just one type of orchids. Now, if you go in detail, there are 100 kinds of orchid of different types which grow all over the world. Okay, and I'm going to come to consumers and how they have been changing as well. 
So let's talk about the e-commerce. At what point did you uh, switch to e-commerce and how did that become an opportunity or an option? Again, given the potential risks of uh, perishability and so on. See, uh, we were the very early entrant. I realized that uh, I have to be the florist to the world. I have to be the shop where anybody can shop from anywhere. And that was only possible online. And it was emerging as a phenomena to order online 2001, almost 22 years back that uh, we started our FNP.com. See, what used to happen was that a lot of people will come to our shop and say that I have my brother staying in Chennai. Can you have it sent? Now, how do I send it to Chennai? Because I don't have an outlet in Chennai. Either I have a partner who I can send, you know, order to and he will deliver. Then the reliability was poor. You get complaints and everything. So I think initially it was started more for convenience so that, you know, there can be cross-city transactions and people can access us from anywhere. Ultimately, it became big business. And which is your largest city by value right now? Delhi. Followed by? Mumbai, Bangalore. Okay. So, you know, when, when you started e-commerce, how did you start putting the various building blocks together? Uh, one is, of course, the sourcing of material, which we're already doing, but anticipating demand or responding to demand. I'm assuming it did not go as smoothly because these things never do. But tell us about how that journey was. Initially, when I started, it was one desktop and one person. That's how the online business was started. We used to get three, four, five orders a day. And we used to feel, oh, as if order is coming from heaven. We don't even know the person and order is coming on the screen. That was the initial start. But then, of course, we kept learning and realizing the demand. And since we were already franchising, we already had close to 20, 30 shops in different cities in India at that point of time. And we tried to build a larger network of good florists across the country who could be a delivery partner. So I think the first three years went into aligning the delivery partners and adding more and more pin codes and cities so that we can deliver comfortably. But the biggest problem with the flower business was that the flower business was a business which has trust deficit. All the florists probably, if you trust them to send flowers, they'll probably send the flowers which are old and about to die, not the fresh ones. So people always to feel that unless you go and choose your flowers yourself in a flower shop, the flower scent will be old and will probably not survive. So that was the headwind, you know, that making people trust a florist to deliver. And that was one problem. And second problem was the network that, you know, you are able to deliver in many places. So first three years went into developing that network, making sure that I deliver better than, you know, if you go and choose yourself. So that confidence started building in and then it was a gradual process. At most of these times, you never had a competitor, I would imagine. Yeah, luckily, even today, I mean, um, we have competitors independently in colony-wise or maybe smaller city-wise. But on a pan-India basis, even after 30 years, we are, we are the only one. Right. And at one level, considering that so much capital has flown into so many e-commerce businesses, you could have, I'm assuming, also raised. Or did you not deliberately do that? Or did you try and maybe not get the capital that you wanted at least some years ago? See, uh, when I started business, all these startup and PE, all these words were not existing. People used to do their own resources, you know, take money from here and there and start their business. It wasn't an organized supply of money. So that option was not there when I started. And what happened was that in the first seven years, by the time I broke even, 
I was already in debt. Serving debt is a pain. It took me three, four years to get rid of that debt to become debt free and start making money. So I've always been a very orthodox kind of a businessman who realized that debt is a pain. So don't take loan, don't take cheap finance. Whatever you earn, keep flowing back, keep flowing back. So I started making money. FNP had become a brand. We were doing very well. I had six, seven verticals running. But if you ask Vikas Nutia personally, I didn't even have a flat because I invested every penny that what I earned back into the business to grow the business. At one point of time, uh, when people realized that it's become a sizable big company with no debt and no private equity and nothing, and it's a profitable company year after year, that's the fruit I'm reaping because of that hard work of 15, 20 years where every single penny earned was invested back in the business. You've never raised capital, that means? We raised last year. Okay. And uh, what prompted that? See, uh, my dream was always to have an IPO. I always wanted, you know, from the childhood, everybody has some dreams. So I thought that let the company be traded in the share market and the speculative value and the valuation of the company. So there was a strong desire to go public. So when we decided that, okay, we, we are worthy of going public, let's hire a couple of bankers and advisors and see how we can take it further. A lot of advisors advised us, why don't you lock the value of the company one by diluting a small bit so that your valuation will be established. And then you take some money, you spend money on branding or maybe expansion so that since it's a growing business and a successful business, in two years' time, you multiply further and then go for IPO. So it was a stopgap arrangement before the sprint. Yeah, actually, that was my question. I'm saying, did you do a pre-IPO raise as opposed to uh, the IPO itself? Yeah, you can say that kind of a thing. Right. And, you know, tech is an important part of any e-commerce uh, venture. So how did you build your tech and that too, all this while obviously using internal accruals? Because many other companies who have been in e-commerce, even smaller versions, have invested a lot, obviously in people. There are a lot of incentives, there are attractive ESOPs and so on. And you seem to have done it without all of that. First of all, uh, tech-wise, you have to be ahead of others to be able to sustain the passage of time. But luckily, initially, we used to outsource and get it looked after by an outside agency. Then I think 2007-8, we hired a tech head and we built our own tech team. And then onwards, we have been investing uh, whatever is required from our own equivalents. Right. And, and tell us about now, uh, as you've grown today, you talked about 5 to 7 lakh stems. And, and tell us about what is the consumption and consumer behavior that you're dealing with on th two or three different levels? I think one is on a normal day, which is off-season, uh, or I don't know what is off-season for you, but you, uh, I'm, I'd love to know. Second is, for example, the big season, like a wedding season or uh, New Year's and so on. So those spikes I could understand, but what happens on a normal day? See, uh, what I'm talking about, 5 to 7 lakh stem, is a normal day situation. Now, on an occasion or a heavy day, of course, things are different. And now, for the last maybe seven, eight years, we don't look at flowers as a commodity any further. We have become a proper gifting company where we have more than 30,000 gifts from flowers to cakes to chocolates to plants to personalized. And we are in different geographies. We are uh, overseas in few countries. We are delivering all over the world. So the whole game it has become of a different dimension where flower is not the talking point anymore. Of course, flower remains the most relevant but we are talking like a proper gifting solution company now. 
Right. And, and uh, you know, someone who goes to your website, uh, even if you buy flowers, you're offered chocolates and cakes and, uh, and so on and so forth. But the thing that struck me is, uh, at least I've been curious about is how, how does it all come together? Because a florist is obviously an independent entity from a cake maker versus a chocolate supplier and so on. Initially, when we we're building this particular category, we used to outsource, we used to have tie with cake shops all across the country and we used to deliver to third party. We realized that cake is becoming big and we opened our own cake brand called FNP Cakes and we have 170 shops today all across the country and we deliver through our own outlets. So now the quality is under control, the retail brand is prospering and similarly we are adding white labels now in chocolates and other things where we feel that demand is there and the quantities are there. So we will keep doing that for all other categories also in the coming times. So what are the big spikes right now in India? When, when is it that demand really shoots up? See, uh, I think wedding season is the biggest trigger, which is November to February. November to February is winters, it's festivals, weddings. That, that's the celebration time in this country. So that's the peak period for us. And peak period starts with Diwali, which is the beginning of the wedding season. And Valentine's, which is very big for us, which is probably the end of the wedding season. So it's between the Diwali and the Valentine, we have our busiest period. And then of course, Rakhi and other Mother's Day, Father's Day, smaller occasions, they keep coming around the year. So would you say now that with obviously so many years behind you, you have a fair sense of how demand will move on A, one is normal day, and B, the sort of big wedding seasons or other big celebratory occasions? Yeah, yeah. I can, without blinking my eye, I can tell you immediately that after 10 days on this day, what will happen? That's the experience and that's the kind of journey we have been through. So it's all uh, very clearly defined now. Just to come back to the unit economics part, how has that been changing as you've brought in delivery, as you've combined more gifts into the package, so to speak? And how is the cost of delivery working out versus, let's say, what people are willing to pay for the whole thing? See, inflation has definitely affected us because inflation has increased the cost of a lot of ingredients and inputs which go into delivering a gift. And that definitely has its impact on the profitability unless we increase the price, which we have not. Number two, I think the demand and the requirement of the society and especially with the Gen G coming in is changing every day. It's very, very dynamic. So one has to foresee what's going to be the next thing in demand and how to be ready with that particular product at what price range. So I think the marketing team is doing an excellent job where we are able to foresee what's going to happen in the coming times and how to counter the inflation. And I think the most important part is that we've always been very, very extremely careful about that we have to make many money every month. So we accordingly adjust our costs, costs are cut. We try and reduce a lot of things, which we probably do otherwise in a good month. So we manage somehow, but profitability is the most important part as a business friend for me. You talked about being able to predict what's going to happen 10 days down the line, which I'm sure is the case today. But tell me about an occasion where you've been completely caught by surprise. I think uh, it was COVID time. Uh, we thought that it's bad time and COVID time at the time of Rakhi, I think 2020 Rakhi, we didn't know what to do. Orders were flying like, I mean, we are unable to trade the orders. It was that kind of a mad rush. And during Rakhi, during COVID, there's so much of restrictions with, you know, people are scared and the whole team of 500 people working around the clock and everybody from 
myself to every junior staff in the office is packing rakis and trying to create a dispatch that was something which i'll never forget you know very pours it pours like mad we were praying to the god let's stop let's not take any further order that's a very memorable uh, rakhi for me covid rakhi so today and you have many verticals that are under fnb.com so tell us about what's the rough sales breakdown in percentage terms if you like and i guess starting with flowers but i don't know if flowers is your biggest selling item anymore i will break all the verticals into three different zones one is of course fnb.com which is a retail online offline that is the biggest which accounts for almost 60% of our total turnover 20% is our weddings weddings means our wedding decoration wedding planning wedding venues whatever we do under a wedding umbrella and 20% is rest of 67 verticals some of them are startup some of them are growing so that's the whole fnp breakup and i know you attempted some other things including street food which haven't worked out and you've also taken away some lessons from what i could understand about the way you structure these companies in future so is that something that you are applying now going forward i think that was the biggest lesson of my life i mean uh, i would not have been successful if i wouldn't have failed you know doing chatak chat chatak chat namak was the name of the venture and it was 2007 8 when things were doing very well i thought it's time for me to unleash another you know big opportunity and take it to the next level and that madness resulted into a complete washout i can say of funds and petals whatever i had i drained i was in debt and in those four years i learned a lot every day was like going to a school called struggle and 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 you come back knowing something little better than what it was day before yesterday and those four years taught me so much so much when the chatak chat was closed and i started my second journey i got a second journey because i was literally on footpath you know i had nothing in 2010 i started the journey again but yes i had my lessons very clearly you know written in my head that what to do what not to do how to do and all those lessons from that nowhere to today in 12 years thanks to chatak chat that failure and you still didn't raise capital at that point no which you could have i'm assuming no see uh, i i like given an interesting story as an entrepreneur as a businessman i listen to a lot of people but i am somebody who doesn't like interference in the decision making from the very very beginning that's been my dna that you know if you have a stakeholder or a partner you have to listen to that person you have to kind of have that dual responsibility kind of a thing where you know one can accuse each other one can praise each other so i wanted it to be my way or highway kind of a thing so i didn't have any second person i was the lone person then i'm the lone person now of course last year we have a very healthy investment and the people who invested i must say i've been very lucky that we got some of them that they leave it to you and they trust you completely so it was just because i didn't want interference i didn't have anybody you know kind of be partner me or invest in me and or whatever and and you're saying that's changed i will not say changed but i can say now there is a method to the madness you know uh, earlier i was maybe arrogant earlier maybe i was uh, taking too much risk sometimes risk which was suicidal now i have started calculating those things with my experience with my knowledge and whatever i've learned so yes i'm definitely much more careful now and of course my son has joined me now i have to listen to him because he's a he's a next gen and he has his own way of looking at things 
and I have, I have a lot of senior people who have been there with me for 15, 16 years, 18 years. My current CEO is there with me for 25 years. So the whole team is so old, it's like family. So of course, we discuss amongst us, each other and I've started listening much more now, yes. And just to go back to that street food example, so would one takeaway be maybe the mistake of an early diversification or what's your thought on, because you are diversified now to some extent, or are you in a way confident that all of this still fits in, let's say, the gifting category or the experience category and so on? I understand your question and I feel basically two learnings, if I can give you a larger picture. First learning was that stick to your core competence. Food was not my competence. It was more of a desire. If I ask myself why Chatak Chat, I will say it was just maybe a crazy idea and I wanted to convert this. My why was not clearly defined. So after Chatak Chat, whatever I've done in my life has been either flowers or weddings or some kind of a planning, you know, in terms of we have last journey, which is funeral planning and a couple of other things. So now I try to try and stick to my core competence. And second lesson I can say is that never buy a car unless you have a good driver in hand. If you have a good driver, even if you buy a not such a good car, one can drive well. But if the driver is not right, the best car in the world will not function. So I think there are two large lessons which, which are governing my mind right now. So as you look ahead, and I don't want to take you too far ahead, but at least let's say the rest of the year, we've recovered from COVID and there's an interesting experience that you've already shared. I'm assuming things have gone back to pre-COVID levels or maybe even better than that. But how is the next year looking and what are you doing specifically or generally in this market or at this time? We are very optimistic, to be very honest. We're very optimistic. And as I said that we always look at two years hence, we start doing our R&D and all our efforts work two years prior. And if you ask me honestly, I'll say that the real time of the brand is now. I think the initial hard work, all the foundation and the overall positioning is complete. It's the takeoff time now. So we will take off next year onwards and probably we'll have IPOs and the idea is to become the true global gifting company. And, and uh, one last supplemental question, which I can't go without asking you. Uh, what is the one flower that you feel conveys emotions the best in India? from your experience as someone who's dealing in this for so many years? I have two answers to this. If you ask me roses, of course, no, nothing like a rose because a red rose means love. Nothing conveys more than a red rose to an Indian or to, I think, almost anybody. But to me personally, I love anthurium. Anthurium is a heart-shaped flower. This is very beautiful to look at. And that's the flower for me. And what's the best-selling or the most-selling flower on your system now? Roses. And, and and I'm assuming it's red roses as opposed to other kinds of roses. 50% red roses, 50% other colors. Right. Okay, Vikas, thank you so much for joining me and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. 
Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.